Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is George Michalakis, the Chief Investment Officer of Gladstone Management, a $2 billion long short equity hedge fund based in London. George founded Gladstone in 2006 with seed capital from, well, me, Protégé Partners, and six years later bought back the stake when still managing less than $100 million. In the dozen years since, Gladstone has won awards for European Hedge Fund of the Year, 
and the top-performing five-year fund for three years in a row. Long before that, George became an international chess master and took third in the 1992 World Under-20 Chess Championships. We discussed George's path from chess to investing, alongside his college friend Roloff Berta of Sequoia, the challenges of the fundamental long-short equity model, the culture required to make it work, and how he does it at Gladstone. Before we get going, 2024 is shaping up to be a great betting year. On the first episode of the year, I discussed a bet I made with Morgan Housel that same as ever would sell more than 100,000 copies. Morgan let me know just last week that his new book already has sold 150,000 copies. Sales are accelerating week over week, and it wouldn't surprise me if it sells a million copies 10 times our over under. Second, my son Eric touted his focus going into our family fantasy football league final. He sounded persuasive and perhaps ready to take over the show on the Spread the Word clip, but I edged him out and took home this year's trophy. Two bets in two weeks with two wins has me wondering if I should go to Vegas. If you want another winning bet, I'll share one here. I'll bet that if you share your love of capital allocators at the next opportunity, you'll look good, feel good, and be good. I'll also bet that if you're listening to this, you already agree. So go ahead and spread the love. Thanks for spreading the word about my betting prowess. Just don't tell Warren Buffett I said so. Please enjoy my conversation with George Michalakis. George, wonderful to see you. Thank you for having me, Ted. Why don't you take me back to what you were most passionate about when you were a kid? Probably solving problems. And I became passionate about chess. That carried me intellectually when I was younger. And competing, I think, actually, in hindsight. I enjoy competition. So if you put together a competition with chess, where did you take that? Became the South African champion. That happened relatively quickly. Came third in the world under 20. Played internationally. Very reminiscent of Queen's Gambit. I don't know if people watch that series on Netflix, but that history tour for me. Clearly, I'm not her and she's not me, but when I watch that, there's a lot of reminiscing. That was my misspent youth is the way I like to think <laughs> about it. When you think back to those times, are there any particular stories from your chess playing years that stand out? It's all about characters, but like the series on Netflix, it's not specific events, but I think the characters involved, they're so unusual in many cases. I just enjoyed the travel, going to places, I went to Armenia in 1996, found myself in the middle of a coup d'etat, was walking around with whatever hard cash and my passport in my pocket for three days. We had no idea what was going on. And I think the coup was repelled. And then the next thing we saw was the tanks, the army marching in the square, and we're like, oh, it's over. What was your path from going through university into finance? Met somebody in my university time that... We discussed a lot. What do we want to do with our lives? Where do we want to go? That person is Rolf Boerter, who runs Sequoia globally. He went on his path, and I went the London private equity, long short equity path. But I think we were motivating each other, or at least discussing what's interesting, what's challenging, where's the opportunity set. Coming full circle back to chess, by the time I was in my late teens, it was obvious that there was some limit to how far I could progress in the chess world. Maybe you can get to the top 50 if you live and breathe it. 
but that's as good as I would have been able to achieve. Whereas I got into private equity in the late 90s. It was a cottage industry. It's hard to imagine today, 25 years later, that private equity was literally teams of five or 10 people doing handcrafted deals. And the fund sizes were all one to five. And the firms were nascent in terms of just where they were in their development. And I think long, short equity, it's similar. At least in Europe, it's still somewhat unproven. Fundamental long, short, single manager. There's just not many of us left in a way. A lot more opportunity to not be number 50 at best, but rather excel and get to the top. What was it that led you to go from private equity to public equity? Private equity, it's a patience game. You do a lot of work, three months potentially on a single company. You learn a lot, but often things don't happen. There's a lot of binary outcomes at the end of three months of work. As soon as I was in public markets, I think the fact that you get multiple opportunities to use your knowledge, either long or short, and that steady flow of opportunities had, in a sense, and your ability to monetize your thinking both ways was extremely appealing. And really, you're pitting yourself against other minds, similar to chess. I think there was something more like chess about it that appealed, whereas in private equity, you have to create it, which is fine. It's entrepreneurial, much more process-driven, but hopefully you do a deal a year. What was your early training like in the public markets? It was a nascent industry back in 2003. So most of how I was learning was reading books and talking to people who were involved in the business. I'd say the best training I got at Lansdowne was risk management portfolio construction, which is totally not what you experience or see in private equity. There's risk management in underwriting the securities and the diligence and the efforts there, but you don't think of things in a portfolio sense and you try and steer away from macro debates or macro risks and try and underwrite dull assets, the predictable assets that should prove secure over long periods of time. Going to the public markets, I think the most informative was really learning about how to think about portfolios. What are the risks from a portfolio construction point of view? And what are the themes that the market's trying to capture? Slightly top-down ideas. And I'm actually grateful for that because a lot of the emphasis, be it private equity or hedge funds, in the initial five years of one's career is bottom-up. And that's a bit commoditized. People now know how to use a spreadsheet. People know how to read 10Ks. And you're not going to make better assumptions on a two-year view than most other people so you have to differentiate in different ways. And I think what we've done well is combining top-down thinking, thematic thinking, understanding maybe even, an ambitious word, with that bottom-up analysis and looking for where those two coincide. Before we dive into how you do that, I'd love to chat about fundamental long-short equity, which over the last decade, maybe longer now, hasn't really delivered en masse what investors had expected. You've seen fund flows, index funds, all this kind of stuff. What's your sense of how the long-short equity model should work? I think there are different models that can work and that platforms have clearly exhibited success in one type of model. I think on the flip side, when you look at the single manager construct, I think there's been hidden flaws in what most single managers gravitate to that isn't entirely obvious. And over time, the lack of success there it's been relatively consistent. 
it comes down to portfolio construction and short alpha. And I think a little bit the simple way to do the math is if you're running a 150 gross long short fund and you've got good long alpha, but no short alpha, and you end up with 150-50, what I mean is 150 gross, 50 net exposure, that means you're 100 long. So you're long manager on that side of the balance sheet. And on the short side, you're running a 50 short book, which produces no alpha, which means you're basically short an index. So you're running a 150 gross product, which is effectively a long product with a short 50 index. Over time, why is that worth anything? And that very elementary math is at the heart of the problem. Too little gross, too little short alpha, and you end up being a diluted good long manager. Again, I think when the markets are healthy, your lungs are working, that product seems okay. But have some flat years in the markets and some challenging years where you're just short the index and the product doesn't work. And so over time, that construction, it's timid. It's almost too safe to begin with. And it's probably a reflection of the challenge of running long short makes people want to keep it safe and simple in terms of the portfolio construction. But that's like trying to build a Formula One racing team and not making the car fast. It doesn't make sense because you really have to be pushing the envelope intellectually, risk management, portfolio construction, seeking out alpha on the short side in a very persistent, methodical way. You can't really just have this diluted long-only product with skillful stock selection on the long side and safe shorts that make the product look like a long short product, but the math is showing you is that it's just a diluted good long product. You mentioned the challenges of running a long short fund. So let's say stripping out the timid, as you say, portfolio construction. What are some of those challenges? It's a high performance industry. So you need to set yourself up for that environment. That means people aligning yourself with your organization, sourcing talent, incentivizing the talent, training the talent. It's a lot about how do you find people that are aligned with that performance culture and have that persistent search for incremental performance bred into them. They don't think that it's just going to happen because it may have happened. doesn't mean it's going to happen again. So you have to keep pushing, as with every competitive industry, you have to keep pushing for what's the next idea, what's the next improvement, etc. I think ultimately it comes down to can you create that culture of performance, intellectual integrity, pursuit of excellence. And when you canvas randomly people, is that what you want to do? Many of them will say yes. What it takes to actually do it, that's a different matter. Everybody wants to be a world-class tennis player or golf player or something that's extremely competitive and difficult. When you get down to what it takes to actually get to that level of performance, I think most people just have other things in their mind. It's as simple as that. And differentiating between, can I build a culture where people are aligned and motivated to win, to perform? It's not easy, actually. What's an example of, in the investment realm, what it takes to be able to excel in that way that you feel sometimes people don't get to? Changing your mind, being intellectually flexible. I think a lot of people get into, I'm right. And the idea that just toggling other potential outcomes, possibilities, approaches, there's an inertia, there's a stubbornness, 
I think that's quite hard for people to navigate. If you think about it, in any professional sport, there are times when the individual, the team, are not performing, and they probably need to change something, and somebody needs to drive that change. Just because they worked before doesn't mean they're going to work in the future. So being able to be dynamic enough and open enough, intellectually open enough, emotionally open enough, maybe this has just changed. Let's just look at the facts anew. I'd say data is something that people struggle with. Embracing data seems to be a challenge, at least in the long, short equity space. I'm sure I'll hear a lot of people say, no, that's not true, because they scrape data. But it's as simple as, okay, you keep trying to short this sector, and there's no alpha doing that. And you've been trying to do that for three years. It just shows that, is this a good idea? And it's like Moneyball. And if you can actually dissect performance into pieces and really analyze not just your longs and your shorts, but let's disaggregate that down into sectors. Have you managed to prove that you can generate alpha in this sector repeatedly or in that sector? And then that's where the platforms, again, just the, the entire construct is imposing that measurement discipline. I find in the single manager construct, many people are resisting that measurement. So in addition to the ability to be flexible intellectually and that use and embracing of data, what are some of the other challenges you've seen in people that can't get from maybe they're good to being great? Again, let's compare to professional sports. There's 10,000 guys with a great first serve, top 1% type of great serve. Of those 10,000, what percent have a great forehand? Maybe 20%. And then of those 2,000, how many have a great backhand? Maybe 20%. And then how many can play grass and clay? Maybe 20%. So one of the challenges is that you're having to keep adding new skills and not only refresh the old ones because things are changing, but having to actually add new strengths. So you have to keep getting better. And that personal drive to keep wanting to improve and find areas that you can improve and then working hard at them to improve. People underestimate just how many thousands of hours a tennis player might spend just looking at his backhand. And the idea that you're going to spend 50 hours getting a bit better at your short side, people under egg just how hard it is to get better unless they're very determined. So I'd love to circle back in time to your founding of Gladstone as you come out of Lansdowne. If you look back, what are the things that you've learned both about building a business and about the investment process that you may not have known even if you thought you did when you launched Gladstone? On the investing side, I think probably the most valuable lesson I wish I knew back then that took me probably the first five years to figure out is have a very clear idea in your mind how you're going to construct the portfolio. And somehow committing to that structure really informs how you build the team, how many longs you need, how many shorts you need. It sounds simple, and most people think they have the answers to those because their presentation deck has an answer to that. And I wonder how many people it changes every three or five years. But really committing to a portfolio construction system ideology that you've thought through. And if you have something that works, and it might be 180 gross, 30 net, or whatever it is, stick to it and really build from there because that will inform that you need 50 shorts or you need 
30 longs or whatever the number is and how many people you need to do that and how you're going to go about doing that. I think managers who haven't thought through those things, they're often doing what their resources allow them to do. And they end up with the product that their resources allow them to have, which may again not be a product that actually works. The comparison would be in tech land. If what I need to do is build this type of AI and have this size R&D team and invest $20 million to build it, because that's the only way to compete, I'm not going to be able to do it with $5 million. It's just an insufficient budget. Well, you'd never start that tech company if you only had $5 million. I think this business is the same. What you need is eight people. You need to generate a short idea a week. You need to generate one long idea every three weeks that makes it into the portfolio. It requires this many man hours. But you need to start with a really clear idea of what your portfolio actually is going to look like. And it's a tough exercise because when you're starting, you're not quite clear enough about all these variables. But spending the time to work that out and then asking yourself what resource that takes and how am I going to set my team up to execute on it is such a worthwhile investment because all the noise that can happen if you haven't done that. And I've seen managers on the single manager side, one day they're trying to be very long, the whole team's working on longs. The next moment they want to be neutral and the whole team's working on shorts. That's not possible. You can't manage an organization to go from serving Italian food one week and Chinese food the next week. It just doesn't work. Being very clear in your mind how to set yourself up from a portfolio side, I think is probably the number one lesson I had to learn pretty quickly. And then on the business side, and this is a recurring theme that I've experienced with entrepreneurs that I've engaged with, is I should have brought in a chief people's office or an HR person very early on. This business is about people and having somebody full-time focused on that flywheel is super important. When it comes to building the culture of the organization, there are a couple of buzzwords you threw in. Culture is one, alignment, incentives. How do you go about creating, let's just say, the alignment and incentives in the model that's worked? One of the most important learnings is having that contract with people up front so that, okay, here to do research and help produce alpha, the alpha will be measured. So having that contract with your investment team, what precisely are you expecting them to do and how you're going to remunerate them for it. And I think, again, the platforms, they got that right because the contract gets set very clearly on day one. Whereas in the single manager construct, I think it's often quite fluid and people are just expected to do more as they stay with the firm. And it's not always clear whether they are doing more. The measurement of what they are doing and what they're not doing isn't clear. So a lot of effort from our side to get better at that contract with the investment team, the incentives, how we measure, sitting with them on a biweekly basis to go through what they are and aren't doing, and really helping develop them. Any ambiguity in that relationship tends to not work over time. As you've set up those contracts with the people on your team, how do you bring that down into practice of what the alignment is? There's different compensation structures that people use. Is it one portfolio? Is it individual ideas, a contribution to the portfolio? What have you actually done that's worked? Alpha measurement recognizing when it's their idea versus somebody else's idea, the firm's idea, 
measuring. Just measure as much as you possibly can. And Alpha being that North Star, back to all good and well, these were money-making ideas, but there was no Alpha. Or it was an okay short, but not a great short. Or it was a decent short, but we actually added at the wrong times, and therefore there was no Alpha. It's a little bit getting people to be more precise about how much alpha they're measuring and really measure themselves, build the habits internally and also with the team to want to be measured, to enjoy being measured, to check their own performance. It's a performance industry. I'd love to turn to how you take all of these philosophies about people and portfolio and put it into practice at Gladstone. Let's walk through some of that investment process. So first, how did you decide what your investment universe would be? My background is financials and TMT. So those have tended to be the big areas where we focused on. We've extended that to consumer, which is touching TMT. So those today are the biggest three areas. And then over time, you can do smatterings of things as add-ons, some industrials, some healthcare, but really deciding what your core areas of expertise are and getting better at those and building the organization around those building a culture of excellence around those. So that takes an awareness of what am I going to do and what am I not going to do? What sectors, what market caps I'm willing to invest in? My background's always geographically been London. So European equities has always been an obvious investment place for us. The US is such a big, deep market. And we try and use what we see in Europe or our understanding of the world and apply that to the US. And then I grew up in South Africa, so that tends to be a market I play in. And I lived in Australia, so that tends to be a country we do things. And beyond those, it's de minimis. So stick geographically to what you understand and stick from a sectoral perspective to what you understand. And that's led to a risk framework where we've, much like the platforms, we're measuring exposures by country aggregations of certain countries by sectors, by subsectors, by factors. So there's very much a risk system framework that we use that dovetails the expertise. As you looked across those geographies, South Africa, Australia, Europe, US, I would love to get your sense of where you see relative inefficiencies and if they exist at all. Everything's an experiment. And the market is a snapshot of its estimate of what that experiment means in terms of the value of companies traded on an exchange. The fact that next year, out of the S&P 500, 50 companies will be up X percent and 200 companies will be down Y percent. And that estimation is perpetually changing. And it's not just the company said X and therefore the stock went up or down. It's an estimation of how the macro is affecting the company and what impact will AI have on these companies. We're always trying to gauge future prospects with current stock prices. That is inefficient. So the idea that the market is efficient is true of what is known. But as regards the future, it tends to be a very inefficient mechanism. So I think we're all trying to estimate where is the future likely to be different to what current information is telling you is true. That could be on this management team is promotional, obfuscating. So the information looks better than it really is. And that's going to unravel in the future. So that's assured. And human nature, the human condition, it's prevalent in everything, in how companies get built and how communication happens with the stock market. 
in whether management wants to be promotional because they want to feel like they're the good guys because the share price is strong, or you're a tech company and you have to keep being promotional because so much of your comp is in SBC. There's a lot of understanding incentives. There's various areas where, yes, there's a lot of information in the current stock price, but management behavior and incentives, I think, tends to be very underestimated in terms of the future prospects of a company. How do you go about creating a process to assess those people dynamics in companies and in markets? We've got a short framework. There's 10 boxes in the short framework and it divides broadly into internal dynamics to a company and external environmental factors. We probably spend the most amount of time talking about management because I do believe that it's probably the one dimension that people spend the least amount of time thinking about measuring, understanding. We'll have people come in who do executive analysis. How do they even think about understanding executives? What do they look for in the history and their buyers? And how do they assess them? And that's more of the art side of this business, calculating whether next quarter's earnings per share is going to be at plus or minus 1% is the science part. We should be talking more about management strengths and whether that behavior that we think the market will reward or not, and actually creates fundamental value, and less time talking about whether the next earnings per share is up or down 1%. What are some of the tools or frameworks you use to assess management? Look into their background. We look for alignment of their skill set with the job that they've been hired to do. And you'd be surprised how many really good companies just hire the wrong people to run them. You've got to develop an eye for that. That's just the wrong person. They're not going to be able to do that job. It's coaching people to develop a sense of what does it take to run a business? And is that CV the right one? It's rare to see lateral hires, hiring people from totally different industries coming in to run businesses. The Adidas CEO was previously at a chemicals company. That's not a natural evolution in my mind. He was highly regarded in the chemicals industry. He had no experience that we could tell in the consumer industry. And some of these things are happening more regularly and frequently than we realize. It took Microsoft three goes to replace Bill Gates. They got it right, eventually. Getting under the hood and observing whether somebody's actually making the right decisions, capital allocation decisions, M&A decisions, and tracking what they say versus what actually happens and disaggregating that. So you've got to have a pretty sharp inquiring mind to keep listening out for gaps in what people say and then what they do. There's often more turnover on the short side of a book than a long side of a book. I'm curious, how does that assessment of management change over time? Generally speaking, I think poor management tends to persist. In our portfolio, the longest standing positions are actually short positions. There's more of a bell curve. Maybe things pay off quickly. Maybe they just don't work and you cut and you say, look, the timing's not good. But the ones that have persistently underperformed, we tend to just stay short. And it's often about management and just their inability. Maybe they just have the wrong skill set. Maybe they're political appointees. Maybe there's a disconnect between shelled incentives and how they've been elected. There's all kinds of stories. There's not just one template out there. What are some of the other parts of your framework on the short side? As I alluded to, external environments are really understanding where we are. And I ask the team to think in 10-year timeframes. If you look at the company, what environment it's in today, 
how does that compare versus the last 10 years? So I'll give an example. As we speak, regional banks in the US, if you look at the environment they're operating in today versus any point in the last 10 years, it's the worst environment they've had. The regulators obviously tightening up following SVB. Rates have unstuck the low deposit rate culture that's helped the banks over the last at least 40 years. So now that interest rates have moved up and customers actually expect to get a return on their deposits, that's meant the cost of funding has gone up. That hasn't been present, never mind the last 10 years, it hasn't been present for the last 40 years. It's been great that there's been such low loan losses. So there's been very little credit risk in the US system over the last decade. But over the last 50 years, that's not true. At some point, you can't run a bank on the basis that you're going to have 30 basis points of loan loss provisions forever. It's not true. When that changes and how that changes, it's going to happen. It's just a question of when. They've overinvested in their cost bases and they're behind on tech. So there's just a bunch of environmental factors that mean the entire regional bank space is probably under the most pressure it's been in for a decade. And we were short ahead of the market recognizing that. The market just didn't want to believe that things were actually not good for the banks until SVB happened. We're trying to score on a long duration just what's happening in the sector. Is it a good time for these businesses or a bad time? Management departures. So just underscoring what key management departures and can be the chief accounting officer, it can be the chief financial officer. Accounting is a big driver. It's an obvious one that people always talk about. If I had to pick one leading indicator on the short side, it's aggressive accounting. tends to be symbolic of a management team that's trying to prove that it's better than it really is or trying to obfuscate something. So that tends to be another item on the list. And then we have another eight items. And how about on the long side? What are the targets that you like to look for? Good business models. And that seems like an obvious thing to say. But if I had to say something contrary to that, has Amazon proven that it has a good business model yet on the consumer side? 3% margins. It's a good business proposition for customers. That's very different to it's a good business model for shareholders. So really being focused on business models that actually are just great business models. Certain businesses over time have proven to just be better businesses because the model is better. That's, again, super high on my list of, do I want to be an investor in something? The external environment, is this a good time to be invested in this company? Or I can wait, and maybe this is just the wrong environment for this business. So identifying good businesses and then understanding when it's a good time to actually own that business. And then I could go through the list of moats and good management. But if I boil it down to two most important things in my mind, it's a good environment and a good business model. As you're looking across geographies and industries, how did you settle on what you felt like was the right number of names on both the long and short side? On the long side, we've always ended up with 20, 25 longs. And I think it's the concentration and the private equity philosophy comes from my background. And if you're looking for businesses that you can sleep well at night and they're high quality and it's a good time to own those businesses... Getting those factors to come together doesn't produce 100 longs. It produces 20 to 25, at least, of the quality that we like to invest in. So that's been very consistent. And yeah, I could make an investment case for another 50 stocks, but does it fit our framework? And does it really tick enough boxes? Probably not. So that's been very, very consistent. 
where we varied over time and we've now settled on a pretty consistent range is on the short side. And this is back to what I said right at the beginning. Manpower, how large do you want your short book to be? What size shorts do you want, etc. Today, we're running 60 shorts. The average size is just over 1% each. And that takes a lot of manpower, especially when you have a very detailed framework and you're confirming every quarter a lot of numbers from cash flows to earnings to management turnover to incentive plans. So that takes a lot of organization. So I think of our portfolio as on the long side, concentrated private equity philosophy, longer dated holding periods. We're not interested in it's going to have a good quarter. And then on the short side, a very industrial process with a lot of names. But the majority of the investment team organization time and effort is on the short side. How have you organized the investment team to cover three main sectors, four geographic regions, which is a lot of places, a lot of companies? What have you found optimal works? We've organized the team by industry. So I work with three sub-teams, as you point out, and we have three meetings a week, one with each of those teams that runs through research and analysis, new ideas, existing ideas, once a week. We're talking every day, but as a formal, how we've organized ourselves and making sure that people have got a target date to present work, update, imposing some discipline and rigor and structure to everything. I found that's worked very well and allows a small enough forum for everybody involved in that subsector to talk and engage and express their views. What we've moved away from is the entire organization sits down to talk about stocks. The entire organization on the investment side will sit down to talk about lessons learned, share what happened when I was looking at this industrial in Germany versus I was looking at this insurance company in Bermuda versus I was looking at this tech company in Palo Alto. Great forum for that. And always surprising how similar people's experiences are. We're all somehow on the same journey when it comes to public market investing. And getting people to actually realize that and be open about it. And, oh, this wasn't unique to me. And what can we learn from that? And can I improve that? Oh, you did that. I probably should have done that. Just getting people to be open about what worked, what didn't work. It's an example of that learning across different people on your investment team that may be in different sectors. Take the financial sector. I think there's naturally an underweight of management assessment. The expertise lends itself to a lot of three-letter acronyms and lends itself to detail and numbers and a lot of information. And people often just don't lift their heads and say, who's running that company? Do they know how to run this company? We were disclosed on a short in Europe where the CEO had no experience running anything. And that CEO subsequently got let go overnight. But getting the team to focus on how's this person ended up running this company? That simple question, as opposed to all the facts and figures about how the business is doing this quarter versus next quarter, etc. And I think important for different sectors to hear how in TMT, it all comes down to the CEO or the management team. And TMT people naturally know that. But TMT people tend to not spend a whole lot of time on the balance sheet because that's just not the fun part of being in TMT. Companies are companies. And good companies that are getting better tend to embark on very similar journeys over time. And I think bad companies that are getting worse tend to embark on the same types of fact patterns occurring. The underlying principles tend to be the same. 
How do you use the analytical tools of risk assessment in your day-to-day portfolio construction? So as I mentioned, we have risk metrics, and it's a plethora of them, from country limits to subsector limits to sizing limits on the short side if stocks are extraordinarily volatile, to factor limits, to limits by analyst. So we've got a wide range of hard limits that are coded into our portfolio management system. They're based on our data. So this is based on a long track record and learnings from that track record. And they're not intended to produce what the platform is trying to produce, which is no beta, no factor neutrality, no risk to the house, essentially. Here, it's more, how do we optimize based on our data set? What exposures we're willing to take by country, subsector, factor, sizing, individual positions, stop losses. We've got this very colorful portfolio management system that's color-coded all these triggers. It's very much based on our long track record of me being the single trigger puller, which means the data is very consistent because I've made every single buy and sell decision in the portfolio. And there's a DNA. It's the countries, it's the sectors, it's the market caps. And there's a tendency to have a preference for some growth in a company. Doesn't mean I'm a growth guy, but we're not just looking for cheap for cheap sake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this, that DNA is encoded in literally, call it 30,000 individual trades over time. So you can analyze all of that. And then it's extracting what your risk framework is from it. And we've probably spent a good five years doing that. What are some of the things you've learned from looking at all that data that you didn't know ahead of time? It's as simple as net decisions at the fund level tend not to work to you want to do mid-cap long investing, any hair on that asset tends to not produce outcomes that are good. When shorts get below a billion dollars, and we've probably had 15 stocks in our history that have gone from large to below a billion dollars, and when they get to that type of market cap, their behavior changes dramatically. It's a survival call option. The data can tell you all kinds of things. I actually heard a great expression for those small shorts. Somebody call them squirrels. They keep making these noises. And a lot of people, yes, you can analyze companies and you can analyze what's a good company and what's not a good company. But can you create a portfolio that actually works with that information? And in long, short equity, I've seen a lot of people who, they're good at the analysis. They're good at saying this is a good company and that's a bad one. But populating a portfolio that actually produces outcomes, that's a totally different skill set, essentially, because that's about sizing and risk management and exposures. And then if you go all the way to the factor neutral world, it seems that 3% alpha works for everybody. That's fine. We're shooting for 20% alpha, completely different order of magnitude. If you have the ability to generate substantial amount of alpha over time, I'm curious your thoughts about extending your offerings. So you've been this one long short equity fund for nearly 20 years. Lots of folks in your boat have said, oh, we're going to scale by offering a long-only fund out of your longs. And curious why you have not done that. I worry about cultural dilution. I think long-short is a very specific performance-oriented business where you have to be watching what are the great things that I want to be long and where's the trouble and what are the bad things happening where I want to be short. And you have to be watching those two things simultaneously, morphing into a long-only business, the times where that's worked very well for people, and I can really see how that's a good business for the manager. 
But right now, I think we've still got runway in terms of building the long short business out and retaining as the culture as making it as purest as possible. It's important to me right now. If somebody came along and said, "Can you replicate your long book for us in some long product?" It's possible. There's a time and a place for things, but it's really not a priority. What have you seen that you've done well that you think other long short managers haven't? I think really being honest about what the data is telling us, looking in the mirror and measuring everything, and being brutally honest about what it's telling us. So that's embracing data. It sounds again simple. And most people think that they're doing it, but when it comes to themselves, they're far more reticent to embrace the data. I think this is one of the learnings from chess: is that you want to get good at chess, you probably have to spend the most amount of time looking at the games you lost, because there's something you didn't understand about that game, or somebody understood better than you. Reflecting on the games you won isn't going to get you better. It's reflecting on the games you've lost that gets you better, and take them personally. I think one of Dalio's philosophies that I very, very much like is mistakes, errors. They're part of the business, part of life, but treat them like opportunities and try and embrace them. They're messages to learn, and I just haven't seen people do that. And part of the growth path for people who join us is enjoy that aspect. Don't take it personally. No one's shy to acknowledge their mistakes. Because if you weren't making mistakes, you'd be perfect, and none of us are perfect. In your conversations with your investors, what's your sense of what the allocator's perspective is on long-short equity investing? I think there seems to be more skepticism, and I think that's healthy because I don't think it's possible to have a thousand great long-short managers. It's just it's just too hard, and it's too specific a skill set. So that skepticism is probably healthy. I sense disappointment in the community with the overall returns from long short. I think once they get over that, they'll just realize it's quite a bespoke business. How many great venture firms are there? Maybe ten. How many venture firms are around today as a consequence of the last TMT boom? Probably three hundred. So three hundred's going to peel back. It has to, and it may be a decade-long process. And I think long short is a bit the same that. Just like venture is a very particular skill set, and it takes very strong-willed, particular people to get good at it. It's not just throwing money at interesting startups. That realization that long short is the same thing—that it's actually quite a boutique, bespoke business—and it probably shouldn't be that many proper long short single managers out there. When all's said and done, I'd love to ask through your career to pick out a couple of people. That you've learned valuable investment lessons from, and what those lessons are. Rolf Boiter at Sequoia, I think he's very much a follow the data and the fundamentals and understand data and what the drivers of change are. So that's been a super valuable learning for me. And he's in the business of backing the right people who can grow companies. So also learning about backing the right quality of innovation and creativity. Frederick Stola, who worked with me at Capital Z. Who was a Warburg Pincus partner, and just the rigor and discipline to dissect businesses and really get to the bottom of: is this a good business? How does the flywheel work at each level of the business? Was a sort of analytical process and rigor that I hadn't seen before, and we try and apply here. So I'd say those two probably the most influential. 
George, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? It would have to be chess. So I'm still somehow entertained by the game. And I do love to stay in touch with the community globally. I'm still fascinated by the sport, if you like. How have you found chess when you're not nearly as day-to-day engaged as you were as a kid? Playing the game is, you're going to not be as good. So, but I've accepted that. It's more who the characters are, what the politics are, and understanding how the game's evolving. I'm taking the team to have dinner with a 17-year-old who recently was number eight in the world. And just to hear from him what methods and techniques are different from 10, 20 years ago and getting my investment team to engage with somebody who on average is half their age and he's eighth in the world. So this is what's achievable. This is what's possible. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? I was a multiple yo-yo champion. (laughs) You didn't know that. (laughs) I actually forget that for some reason. I think I won every single yo-yo event I ever participated in. I was really good. What's your biggest pet peeve? Intellectual dishonesty gets to me. When people confabulate and make stuff up that sounds right, but it's intellectually just an invention. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I would say the same two as the biggest influence on my investment career, which is Rolf Boerter and Fred Stoller. What was the best advice you ever received? On the investment side, I would say buy good companies and short bad companies. It's so, so, so simple. And the number of people that tell me they're going to shorten video or have a shortened video, I'm just giving you a recent example. I've probably heard that half a dozen times in the last few weeks. And I'm sure they'll eventually be right for some period of time. But is that investing or is that just trying to catch trade? And so a little bit buy good companies and short bad ones. All right, George, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? And this is a very difficult one to put in practice, but really get the contract with the people around you, that understanding with people, what I'm bringing, what they're bringing, what we expect from each other, and really flesh that out as much as possible. It's a hard thing to do in practice. I think people who are good at it tend to get much further in life. As human beings, I think we enjoy a bit of ambiguity. Life is ambiguous. But the more you can create that clarity in your personal relationships and business relationships, any kind of relationship, really, the more you can do that, the better you can do that, the more effective your relationships are. George, thanks so much for sharing your insights. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one, and see you next time.